Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. The swinging 60s was a decade like no other. As London crawled out from under the dust and debris of World War II, a new generation emerged with ideas and demands quite different from their parents. Women's skirts went up while men's hair went down. Clothes were in vivid colours with wild patterns, nothing like those of mum and dad's. They had their own music too. The Beatles and Rolling Stones experimented with ideas and sounds with lyrics of rebellion and revolution. It all bled into the minds of young people, creating identities and beliefs significantly different from the generation before. In 1961, the contraceptive pill became widely accessible, and in 1967, abortion was legalised and made available on the NHS. As women gained control over their bodies, it enabled them to have aspirations beyond marriage and motherhood. Their mothers may have still talked about becoming a lady and getting married, but these young women dreamed their own kaleidoscope of ideas. All around them the world was rising up. Public opposition to the Vietnam War was escalating. Although Britain was never directly involved, people like John Lennon brought it into public consciousness. There were two large protests in London in 1968, The first took place in March, attended by Vanessa Redgrave and Tarek Ali. It erupted in violence with 86 people injured and 200 arrested, including author Michael Rosen, who was then still a student at Oxford University. While media reports were almost universally hostile towards the protesters, it raised questions in the House of Commons about police brutality. On the other side of the English Channel, student demonstrations against capitalism, consumerism and American imperialism received a heavy-handed response from the French police. Trade unions triggered solidarity strikes, which escalated far more quickly than anyone anticipated, involving 11 million workers, 22% of France's population at the time. The government's attempt to quell the strikes through police action only inflamed the situation further, sparking street battles in Paris. Wild-scale civil unrest spread across France, going on for weeks. De Gaulle fled, the government collapsed, and the country teetered on the brink of revolution. Meanwhile, in the US, 600 civil rights activists tried to march from Selma to Montgomery, but were blocked and brutally attacked by the police. After successfully fighting in court for the right to march, Martin Luther King led two more attempts, finally reaching Montgomery a few weeks later. The civil rights movement shaped social justice advocacy in a new and profound way. Although it did not specifically deal with sexism or homophobia, it provided a roadmap for other social justice movements to follow. It stirred the imaginations of people around the world who felt their backs were up against the wall. They began to apply the same tactics to achieve their own equality and liberation. One of the groups to grow out of the civil rights movement was women's liberation. Challenging the legitimacy of patriarchy, liberationists believed women should be free to define their own individual identity. They had a wide agenda, eliminating objectification of women, reproductive rights, peace, and redefining family roles. They employed many of the same tactics as the civil rights movement, including marches, sit-ins, and non-violent civil disobedience. Jo Robinson was one of the founding members of the women's liberation movement in Britain and experienced individual evolution. She said, quote, I kept meeting people who'd just come back from Cuba or just come back from the boulevards in France where they'd been throwing bricks. 
people talked about revolution, changing the system. And when I heard the words changing the system, I thought, yes. It just occurred to me, just like that, that it was the system I'd always been up against. And that gave me a fantastic piece of hope that I'd never, ever felt before in my life. I'd always thought it was my fault. I'm mentally deranged and it's all my fault. And this opened a door and there was a light just shone for me. But while Soho and Mayfair may have been swinging with style and revolution, out in East London suburbs, it was quite a different picture. In working-class corners of the capital, post-war traditionalism ran parallel to all the social and cultural change. While middle-class women may have enjoyed new opportunities and freedoms, in places like Dagenham, the options remained slim and wages low. In 1931, Ford opened its factory in Dagenham, East London. It was their largest plant in Europe, becoming the centre of their manufacturing sales and servicing. By 1950, over a million cars were rolling off the Dagenham assembly lines each year. At its peak, it employed 40,000 people, operating production on a 24-hour shift system. Pay was good for the area, but the Dagenham plant was renowned for squeezing all they could out of its workers. No one makes old bones at Ford, was a popular saying, referring to the short lifespans of many workers, worn down by the intensity of labour. Women could find work as machinists, stitching seat covers. The conditions in the factory were appalling, though. They were made to work in an old shack with a leaky asbestos roof. In the winter, it let in the wind and rain, as well as a fair few rats and mice. The women stuffed the holes in the roof to try and keep a little warmer. Then in the summer, it became a sweatshop, with lime juice and salt tablets handed out to revive the wilting women. They worked on machines without safety guards, which meant injuries were common too. Despite the problems, the women enjoyed the camaraderie of the factory. There was a shared sense of humour, and they missed each other if they were sick. One woman got married in the morning and was back having a laugh with her work friends in the afternoon. Then in 1968, as part of a Ford rearrangement, their jobs were reclassified as Category B, less skilled, instead of C, more skilled. They also learned their pay would be 15% less than men on the B rate. The attitude at the time was that women's wages were secondary to the family income, a bit of pin money. But for the Ford machinists, it wasn't pocket money. It helped with the cost of living, to pay the mortgage and all the bills. The wage cuts profoundly affected their ability to get by. Although there had been strikes at the factory before, they had only involved the men. On the 7th of June, that all changed. All of the 187 women machinists walked out. The strike split opinion in the factory. Some of the men supported and encouraged them, others sneered. They also came in for stick with some of the men's wives, who didn't go to work but feared their husbands would be laid off because of the women's demands. The union initially wasn't much help either. The women's shop steward, Lil O'Callaghan, had to push the conveyor, Bernie Passingham, into supporting them, famously barking, Get off your ass, Bernie, and do something about it. The walkout became national news because it went far beyond inconveniencing their own department. The women sewed seats. No seats, no cars. Not long after the women put down their tools, 9,000 male workers who assembled the cars were laid off. The whole factory ground to a halt. The machinists at the Halewood plant in Merseyside joined the walkout, threatening the whole of Ford's UK operation. 
On the 28th of June 1968, scores of Ford's women workers travelled to Whitehall, infuriated by the pay structures. The employees brandished a famous banner that read, We want sex. A man leant out of his taxi cab window yelling, I'll be back at six, before the women realised the banner hadn't been unfurled properly. The full message read, We want sex equality. Even today, when retelling the story, they howl with laughter. The financial effect was huge, with the company losing an estimated £170 million in today's money. The impact on the wider UK economy did not go unnoticed either. It raised concerns with other big businesses and bankers. So into the industrial battlefield strode Barbara Castle, the recently appointed Secretary of State for Employment and Productivity. Barbara was born in 1910. She was the third and youngest child of Frank and Annie Betts. Frank was a tax inspector, a safe and relatively well-paid occupation at a time of terrible economic hardship. More importantly, he was a socialist. He joined the Independent Labour Party, and although as a civil servant he was prohibited from political work, he became editor of socialist newspaper, The Bradford Pioneer. Barbara's mother, Annie, ran a local soup kitchen for coal miners, and after Barbara had left home, she was elected as Labour councillor in Bradford. Barbara battled her way through the almost all-male Oxford University and out again into a largely male world of politics. In 1944, she was selected for the Blackburn seat, which she won in 1945. Barbara was the youngest of a handful of women MPs elected that year, but stood out from the rest with her flaming red hair and small stature. On her first day as an MP, she walked into the House of Commons gates with her new colleague Michael Foote. They were stopped by security, and Foote was told he could not bring in any guests. Foote introduced her as the new member for Blackburn, to the astonishment of the security guard. The sexism endured inside the Commons too. The women MPs were the butt of sexist jokes from both Tory and Labour men alike, and they were stereotyped as only being interested in women's issues. But Barbara never flinched. Equal pay had been a long-term goal of hers. In 1954, she delivered a petition to 10 Downing Street following the National Federation of Women's Institute's resolution on equal pay for equal work. But she was also a pragmatist. With the quasi-resolution strikes in France still fresh in people's minds, she was eager to get the women back to work. So Barbara supported their demand for both a significant pay rise, increasing the women's pay to 8% below the men's, rising to the full B grade the following year and also promised a government inquiry into the dispute. The union was satisfied with the abolition of the women's rate within Category B, but felt regrading asked too much of the company. The offer was put to the machinists, and although not unanimous, they voted to return to work. Inspired by the Ford machinists, Women Trade Unions founded the National Joint Action Campaign Committee for Women's Equal Rights. In May 1969, this group organised an equal pay demonstration in Trafalgar Square, attended by a thousand protesters. Meanwhile, Barbara knew that the unions would never push for equal pay on their own, and presented Cabinet with a case for a bill. Passing the bill was not straightforward though, and Barbara employed shrewd political manoeuvring to get it through Parliament. In 1970, the Equal Pay Act finally passed allowing equal pay claims to be made from women in private and public sectors, if engaged in broadly the same work. In her diaries, Barbara recalls, everyone was jubilant about that settlement. But in Dagenham, there was still unrest. Find out why after the break.
Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlandandwomen.org.uk. There is also a walking tour app where you can go on self-guided tours around the local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of the family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlandandwomen.org.uk. I'm Esther Freeman, this is Rebel Women. We're back with part two. It's about respect. In Dagenham, the women's fight had never been a civil rights protest. The strike was about recognising their work as skilled and being paid enough to live off. Despite all the protests and acts of parliament, the women were still on B grade and they still believe they deserve to be on C grade. For another 16 years, women at Ford Dagenham asked the management to regrade their roles from B to C. As part of the recruitment process, all the women had been required to do a sewing test, proving, they argued, that the job was skilled. Also, when things were slow, the women were sent off to other parts of the factory to help out. When the women were busy, the men were never sent over to them because, quote, they barely knew how to thread a needle. By 1984, with still no progress on the reclassification, they went out on strike again. Women picketed day and night. This time, there was a lot of solidarity. Postal workers refused to deliver mail, and lorry drivers chopped up wood for their fires. The police came down to check they were okay, occasionally dropping off a bottle of whiskey. Eventually, the management backed down, agreeing to regrade the women from B to C. The Dagenham Ford machinist strike went further politically than the workers could have ever imagined. The initial aim of having their work recognised for its equal value broadened out to become a fight for equal pay for all women workers. Yet despite the Equal Pay Act eliminating separate lower rates of pay for women, the law remained ambiguous. It still allowed employers to regrade roles so women's pay did not reach parity with men's. In 2010, the Equality Act replaced the Equal Pay Act, enshrining gender pay equality in law. Yet the gender pay gap still exists. Jobs are still gendered, and roles that are dominated by women, such as nursing, childcare and social care work, are paid significantly less than roles dominated by men. Women workers are also discriminated against for becoming mothers and taking time out of work, and for being less flexible because of caring responsibilities. In 1981, the International Labour Organisation claimed women in the UK were, quote, gradually losing their fight for equal pay. They fare far worse than other European countries, including France, Germany, Belgium, Sweden and the Netherlands. The four Dagenham women stood up to their bosses, their colleagues and at times even their union. They faced off the press and the government while inspiring others to take a stand. As we celebrate 50 years of the Equal Pay Act, their struggle should be celebrated and studied so we can continue fighting the gender pay gap in Britain today. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you missed any of our previous five episodes on equal pay, you can find them all wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this series, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to stay in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, 
visit our website eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the Barrier Mill and Norman Melbourne Trust for their support of today's episode.